Hello and welcome along to the latest episode of the Manchester is Red podcast from the Manchester Evening News. I'm today's host George Smith and I'm delighted to say that I'm joined by Samuel Luckhurst and Rich Fay this rather dull and miserable Friday, grey Friday lunchtime. Samuel, Samuel no first of all, no how are things at your end? Busy as ever, but you can't complain, That's, it comes with territory. <laughs> yeah, it certainly does. And Rich, how about you? Yeah, not bad. I mean, you didn't get the grey memo, did you? If anyone's watching on YouTube, they'll see myself and Samuel are both uh, dressed appropriately for the weather. Very doom and gloom. Yeah, I guess black black will do, but yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah color I didn't get the memo it. For Yeah, it. it just feels... Yeah, it just feels like we're starting to get summer maybe with the, the transfer window now for United fans' point of view. And I suppose pre-season now, what was it, a week and a half until United play their first match. So there's light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, it certainly is. And Samuel's mentioned there being busy as ever. And finally, it looks as though Manchester United are starting to get a little bit busy. The transfer window has been open for just over a fortnight. And finally, United are seemingly making things happen. They've agreed a fee with Chelsea to sign Mason Mount, understood to be worth around £60 million. He looks set to become the club's first signing of the summer window, barring any last-minute hitches or snags, meaning it should hopefully start the bit of a domino effect with United's recruitment drive in terms of both ins and outs. Samuel, you've been across this story right from the very beginning with Mason Mount. First of all, can you just paint a picture of how United have finally reached this stage of agreeing a fee with Chelsea? I think the ones who did them a big favour were Arsenal, in the green, there's a £65 million deal for Kai Havertz, who had two years left in his contract. And once that was done, that didn't really leave Chelsea with with much wiggle room left. Melton's got one year in his contract. You can't really justify uh, a similar fee for a player who is the same age as Melton's 20, uh, sorry, the same age as Havertz. He's 24, um, Mason Mount. He didn't play anywhere near as much last season because of, oh, because of injury. He wanted to go. There was only a year left in this deal. So Chelsea, they waited it out. They waited it out. But I think they've got a pretty good fee for him. In the end, I think from United's end, they've paid a reasonable fee for someone when he is fit. He tends to start for England. He starts, he's one of 22 players who've started in a, in a major international final for England. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of clout that comes with Mount from what he succeeded and what he's won with Chelsea. So I think from both sides, they can portray it positively, the, the, the fee that has been agreed anyway. But ultimately, Chelsea did want £58 million up front and £7 million on, on add-ons. And John Murta was absolutely insistent that that wasn't going to happen. Of course, if United are very successful in the forthcoming seasons, which is what they want, then that fee will rise to £60 million. But in this new era, it feels like a financial fair play in the profitability and sustainability rules you've got this buzzword that is amortisation uh, which Chelsea have become synonymous with since the takeover last year which is essentially you spread the cost of a player over the length of their contract Mason Mount has agreed a five year contract with the option of an additional year so in terms of his transfer fee it's if, if he does if, if those add-ons are triggered at 60 million pounds over six years it's it's easy maths to work out that averages at 10 million pound a year and that seems you know when you when you boil it down to that which i'm sure a lot of football clubs will be doing now and a lot of accountants will be doing it is an easy positive spin to put on signings chelsea that's one of the reasons why chelsea have given a lot of their new signings really long contracts you're talking about eight-year contracts which really has been unheard of in, in football certainly in in, uh, in Premier League it, it feels excessive sometimes from United uh, and anyway to be given players five year contracts at very minimum or, or contracts that have a maximum lifespan of five years so ultimately it, I think it was what 29 days for, uh, when they agreed personal terms with, with Mount uh, or at least that it became publicly known that those terms have been agreed 29 days 29 days later, United have agreed to feel with Chelsea. So that's that's re- reasonably good going to them in terms of getting the deal done quite quickly. And it would have been longer than that, maybe put the groundwork in. You would imagine that Mount was one of these players that Ten Hag has had a video call with and spoken to. He, he said last month that he'd spoken to players who were keen on joining United, given Mount's situation, it seems feasible he would have been one of those players. And 
when you consider last year, there, there was, I think there was specific, it, it was in fact 100 days of Frankie de Jong from the emergence of United's interest to agreeing the deal with for Casemiro, which effectively ensured that that was it for de Jong, they, they weren't, weren't going to be getting him. Then this is a form of progress and it's, it, it seems like it's, it's worked out well for United, Ten Hag, you can see why Ten Hag likes Mason Mount. I did a good piece on that in the week about how well, Mount, during Mount's time in the Netherlands, uh, the comparisons he was generating with with Dion, which you know isn't necessarily a parallel a lot of people would have drawn, but Mount did play in the Netherlands, and people thought that was a credible comparison to make. And also, it's you know there are there is a certain symmetry between him and, and Christian Eriksen which United need going forward as well. They need, I, I think they need two players per position that are relatively identical or certainly have the same way of operating. They didn't have that with the quartet midfielders last year. And as good as, as good news as it is for United to get, it seems like one, one deal done already, ending Mount's medical, they, there's, they still need to make at least two more first team signings and they will probably be the most difficult in different ways. And they are also the two most important positions in a team, which, of course, is a goalkeeper and a striker. Yeah, it certainly does set the ball rolling there. And Rich, Samuel's mentioned there where we could see Mason Mount play in this team. And obviously there's a lot of people who automatically, you know, tag Mason Mount as an attacking midfielder who plays in the number 10 role, similar to Bruno Fernandes. But if you look at his figures and you look at back what you said previously... He does consider the number eight role roaming between both boxes his favoured position. So I think looking at this situation for the price that Manchester United have, have paid, it's it's natural that he's more than likely going to replace Christian Eriksen in that midfield three and join forces with Fernandes and Casemiro, isn't it? Absolutely. And if you watch United last season, even before Eriksen's injury, you know, he was starting to run on empty a bit. He's a brilliant talent, but he should only have ever been signed as sort of a supplementary option in himself. And you can see Eriksen eventually sort of being what Matter and Matic were for United, a player who has value and can do things in short spells, but someone that they need to manage carefully. And last season, they were almost victims of their own success that Eriksen came in, was brilliant, and then they just felt they had to play him every single game. There was opportunities missed to rest him properly, and I think that caught up with United in the end. And, you know, he was a shell of the play he was previously by, by the final stage of the season, certainly. But I think that, like you said there, I think Mount ticks a lot of boxes. He's not only technically very good, he can attack well, he can defend well. He engages with the press, you know, all those sort of metrics that Ten Hag values from his players. He he wants the the midfielders and the forwards to to be the first line of defence, really. He wants them to engage high. He wants them to press the opposition and, and Mount does that phenomenally well. You know, that is one of his strongest assets and sometimes that can be disregarded by fans because he some of the best stuff he does is when United are out of possession and when he won't have the ball and it will be those things that aren't as obvious on the eye. It won't all be about the numbers for him uh, next season, but he will contribute massively to the style of play that Ten Hag wants. And I think as well it is interesting that you know he can play as number ten or in that sort of Bruno Fernandes role because we saw last season that some of Fernandes' best football came when he dropped back anyway alongside Casemiro. So there's now the option that you could play Casemiro and Fernandes deeper in some games and have Mount as the attacking man. You know, there's going to be certain matches that suit that, certain matches that don't. And in matches where the onus on you to attack, you maybe have Bruno Fernandes as that traditional number 10. In the bigger games, when you may, maybe need a bit more presence deeper in midfield, you could play Casemiro and Fernandes and then have Mount further forward, pressing the opposition, trying to get them out of out of possession. So I think there's a number of ways to, to work it, really. And, you know, the, the, the value in the price tag will get thrown about. There'll be lots of debate on that. It is it is high, but he's a player that Ten Hag wanted. He ticks the box, and it's done now. So I think United just needed to get that first one under their belt. I also think that it's crucial, now that United have the deal in place for Mount, they know what they've got left budget-wise. There's, there's so much uncertainty still to take over in player sales, but at least they know now that amount of money is gone. This is what they've got left, and it should make, hopefully, the following up with further additions a little bit easier. But that, again, is easier said than done. Yeah, it certainly is in this game. But um, Samuel, really, obviously, £60 million is quite a high fee for a player that's only got 12 months left on their current contract. But when you 
when you look at what Mason Mount has achieved in his career so far for the age of 24, you mean he's he's won the Champions League, he's won the UEFA Super Cup, he's won the Club World Cup, I think it's 129 Premier League games he's played. United are getting a very experienced player for his age, aren't they? They are, and he, it, it's it's not that long ago that he, he made his Premier League debut. It certainly doesn't feel that way anyway. And I think that would have been at Old Trafford when uh, Chelsea had that transfer embargo and uh, Frank Lampard promoted all those young players that otherwise would not have got promoted uh, because that's just not the way Chelsea operate. But but Mount did seem to be the, the pick of them and he certainly achieved the most. You look at the other players, I think most of them have moved on. Abraham went to Roma, Gilmore went to Brighton, uh, tomorrow went to, to AC Milan. So it's it's not quite worked out for the others, but with, with Mount, he's... His, his career has just been a, a, con, a constant upward curve, certainly until last season when he got injured. And I don't think anybody came out of Chelsea season smelling of roses well, last time. But it, it still is somewhat of a surprise that it's it's come to this for Chelsea. But the problem they had was that they they offered Rhys James and made Rhys James, I think, their highest earner. And they weren't prepared to give Mount parity, which seems a little bit dearly given that Rhys James, although he's a really good attacking player and the and top top player as well in his position, he is a right back and, and Mount is, is an attacking midfielder. So you think just by virtue of his position, Chelsea would have pulled out all the stops to keep him, but somewhere along the line um, it, it didn't work out and it was was decided by Mount some time ago that he, he wanted out and you know, he's, I think someone at United said a few years ago that in terms of signing players, you want, it's it's ideal to sign them between the ages of 23 and 28, which is probably stating the obvious. And United haven't, you know, they've they've not abided by that rule. I guess all the time there've been various exceptions to that, and and sometimes exceptions have to be made because of the circumstances. I think they just saw that bracket as the ideal one for for their their main signings and. Some of those players have fallen into that age bracket. It, it's, yeah, I think with Mount, although he's one of these players that is unfashionable with a lot of the supporters, I think that is by virtue of his nationality. Um, because for some reason, it's seen as if, if you were to do a poll of fans on, on Twitter, which of course is not a reliable gauge, they'd probably pick an English player to sign last, even if the English player was Ballon d'Or. But that's just, how warped it can be. Um, I mean, when, I, when I've watched him, I've never necessarily watched him and been struck by him. I thought during the, the Euros a couple of years ago, he, he was not necessarily as essential to England's game plan as he should have been. And it's interesting where he would have evolved to a more attacking style. Mount has come out of the team. He wasn't a certain starter at the World Cup. I think he came more than the defeat to France uh, in, in the quarterfinals. But there have been a diverse range of coaches. You think Lampard, Southgate, Poster, Ten Hag, Thomas Tuchel, who really like Mount. And his work off the ball is going to be really important as well because that has been a real shortcoming of United's in, in recent years. And they did make progress in terms of pressing and uh, off, off the ball work last season under Ten Hag because that's what he demanded. And the more players that are aligned with him, the better. I suppose if you were a, a skeptic, you'd say, "Yeah, uh, why aren't why are United still signing players just purely in a manager's image? Is that a bit risky?" But given the progress Ten Hag has made and uh, the pretty good hit rate he's got in the transfer market during his time at United, they they have to back him. And I think ideally, best in class midfielders, Frankie De Jong. He's still wedded to Barcelona. That wasn't going to happen this year. Jude Bellingham always seemed set to go to Real Madrid. It sounded like a great idea for United to try and entice him to Manchester. But if he was ever going to end up at Manchester, it was always probably going to be at City. So they had to look elsewhere. And the, the more you read about Mount, the, uh, the more you think about it as well, I suppose. He is someone that is certainly suited to what Ten Hag wants, which is, is absolutely vital with these things. Yeah, definitely. It is a sign of Eric Ten Hag once again being back with the players that he wants, which obviously he did last summer with the likes of Anthony and Lissandra Martinez, which were considered risks. 
But Rich, obviously you've mentioned there, getting this Mount deal done will of course give United a clearer picture of what they've got left to play with. Obviously they're going to try and raise further funds through player sales. But of course now they've got to turn their attention to the main mission, which is bringing in a new centre forward. Uh, one that's very much easier said than done. There's so many players that have been linked with United in this position. Obviously Harry Kane was Eric Ten Hag's top target. It looks increasingly like that Tottenham are going to be willing to play ball on that one, even though you can never say never. From where you're sitting and what United might have to play with, what route do you think United should head down in their hunt for a number nine? Any route would be a start, wouldn't it, I suppose? I mean, I think patience is going to have to be the key word on this one because everyone is sort of keeping the cards close to their chest. Like you said, the Harry Kane situation is interesting. Tottenham's stance on that and whether they'd make the exception for Bayern Munich, they still want to try and give that a go into Ange next season. And, you know, I think that it's still just so difficult to pinpoint who would be that top target really who would be the the most suited to United style of play and the safer bet really obviously Kane would be the one of the least risk but he's also maybe the least likely of them to happen Ozyman looks like he's probably going to stay at Napoli you know there's no real sounds it's all gone quite quiet on him and then everyone else is pretty much a gamble because you just don't know what you're going to get and Players like Kolomani and Hodgland started off as these budget-friendlier options, but now the word is, and all the the noise being made, is that they could command fees similar to that of, of the elite ones anyway. So if they're all in the same bracket, as I seem to say on every podcast, I would at least try and make a go of Harry Kane. I would have done that before Mason Mount. If you know your budget is only between sort of 100 or 150 million, I would have just thrown it all at getting Kane. And I would have said, if we only sign a strike this summer then that's fine. That will have the biggest impact on turning United from title challenges to to the real deal, really. Um, that's not going to happen. Obviously, Mount's been signed now. So what do you do next? It is it is interesting. And the goalkeeper situation has added a, another dimension to it all because obviously that's gone up in the sort of priority list as well. I think it is going to be a case of if United do a striker business, I think it probably will be towards the later end of the, seat, the summer, which I don't think is what anyone had planned to do. I think United obviously wanted to get it done as soon as possible, but I just can't see it materialising that quickly. And the other issue United have is we always talk about the United tax. We saw why they, they dragged out the Mason Mount deal you know, a bit longer than it should have done. They got their way in the end, so you know, credit to United for, for doing that. But everyone knows United need a striker. You know, there's no way around that really. Everyone, everyone knows that. It's no open secret, and it means it's going to be very difficult for United to get the right player at the right price. And ultimately, that is going to factor into it because there'll be players United can go and get. But if it's not value for money and they don't believe them to be worthwhile, then then they can't do so. And again, the other element in all this is that you said United do need to sell players to to finance someone at the top end of of their target list, but. You can't really sell someone like Anthony Marshall until you've probably got a striker in already because it'll leave you too light. And United are still, I worry, going to be a bit hesitant to get rid of players this summer just because there's no guarantees of, of the backups coming in. You'd imagine now that Mount's in, they can really push ahead with trying to get rid of McTominay or Fred because you've got the replacement already. But other areas of the pitch, other than the likes of Baye and Tellez, who have no value to this United team already... I still think they'll be a bit hesitant to get rid of others just because there's always going to be that element of risk and doubt of what if we do need them. Yeah, it's certainly a more complex issue than many people will think, isn't it? It's not a case of just bringing one in, getting one out. There's a lot more to it and a lot more moving parts. But obviously, something that, as you mentioned there, Rich, has moved up on the priority order is the addition of a first-choice goalkeeper. Samuel, you did that story, I think, last week or the week before. Obviously, David De Gea's contract officially runs out today as we record this on Friday, so he could well be a free agent already by the time people listen to this, depending on what happens in the next few hours. United have obviously been heavily linked with Andre Onana at Inter Milan. Do you think that would be a goer if United do lose De Gea? Do you think they've got the money in the kitty to go for Onana? There's fees quoted of £45, £50 million for him, so they really are going to have to try and Put something, put something together in terms of a sales package to get these players out because it's all stacking up for what they need. But, you know, if De Gea goes, they do need a first-choice goalkeeper rather than a backup option. They, they don't even have the money really available left in their budget for a striker. 
uh, you look at this budget of around 120 million pounds, 55 million on mount, you've got 65 million left for striker. These clubs who United, who, who have strikers that United are interested in, none of those strikers are going to be valued at 65 million pounds. They, they'd probably laugh at 65 million as an initial bid. So United are going to have to be creative in some way or another. They're going to have to promise a big upfront fee with some add-ons. You've got the complex issue of, of the ownership. The owners are not inclined to put the capital in there. Um, it's just, United talk about SNP, which again, that is something they have to be mindful of. But the bigger obstacle, the Glazer family, and the fact that they don't invest in, in the club. Another, it's, it's the, invest, the ownership situation had been boxed off two months ago. I don't think United would be in this position where they are under an arm in over a busted flush of a goalkeeper and whether they should keep them or not. The keeper situation might actually work out easier than the striker situation because if De Gea is let go, which he absolutely should be, and if they sell Dean Henderson, which they should because of the situation there, they would be clearing the best part of 400 grand off the wage bill and they would probably be banking the best part of 30 million uh, in a transfer fee for Henderson. So in that case, you, you would have money and you'd have to sign a goalkeeper because you can't go into the season with Tom Eaton and Nathan Bishop. I mean, it's, Nathan Bishop is a remarkable niche story that he's, he's still at United. He's been at United for three and a half years and there's been, at no point has there been any chance of him ever getting a game with United. But, they, so they're going to need a goalkeeper, but it's, if if United absolutely had to choose between a striker and a keeper for the season and you were told you could only have one of them, it has to be a striker. Because I think if they don't get a striker next season, they can just prepare for the Europa League um, the season after. That is probably going to be the difference between them having uh, as, as good a season as last season or, or a best season last season and having the worst season because... A lot of match girls would, would argue they've actually not got an outright number nine. They've got a number nine in Anthony Marshall, but the way he plays and how often he's injured. So to a lot of supporters elsewhere, that is not that is not centre forward. Um and he's played his best football for United from the West Wing as well. So it's that that's what made the, the mount development initially something of a surprise. I mean, he was obviously attainable where he had a year left in his contract, but be nice to make their first port of call someone who's coming out of contract to Chelsea in a year's time. Um, that that was a slight jolt, I suppose, because when the season ended, you just thought, right, they're, they're going to have to go out and, and get a strike. You know, but it's not that that's not the case. And the going rate for a Man United striker in the summer, it's, it's got to be around 100 million pounds or 100 million euros. Uh, United, I think, have got scope to negotiate that fee down with with some of the clubs, but the players that we talk about, I mean, Osman, I think he's probably, other than Kane, he's probably in the best situation for a club signing in terms of his contract. I think he's only got two years left on his deal at Napoli at the moment. But Napoli could easily command a higher fee for him than, than Tottenham could for Kane because Osman's stock at the moment is regarded as one of the best number nines in the world. Uh, Randall Colomuani, Eintracht Frankfurt, Rasmus Hoyland. Um, and Talanta, they're both contract third clubs until 2027. Those clubs might, there'll be an element of posturing with those clubs probably to house it 100 million, but none of those clubs are in the Champions League next season. So I think you could negotiate that fee down. But then you think, well, arriving with those ideal as as the starting sense forwards in a Man United team that finished third last season and really has got to be aiming to at least consolidate that position or, or try and move up the, the table. Um, it, it probably still seems fanciful for United to mount the ties for challenge next season. I think that is probably beyond them and there has there has got to be an element of consolidation. But you never know, depending on who, who that striker is that could come in. Uh, Gonzalo Ramos is another one who, who Ten Hag likes. Benfica are the club that do the absolute best business at Southern Assets, they've made an absolute killing on all these brilliant players that they've developed and then, well, sold on. And that's been going on for probably the best part of 15 years. And uh, yeah, 
it doesn't harm them to, to link Ramos to United as well because they've done that with Benfica players and RC, even though the majority of them have not ended up at United. So the striker situation is one that ideally is United. They get it done before they fly off to the States where pre-season tour because the other aspect of this is that if they are going for an external option, that player has got to integrate. He's got to... Yeah, he's got to collaborate with his teammates. He's got to familiarise himself with United's patterns of play so that he has the best possible preparation for the start of the season in the Premier League. You look at United's recent strike signings, um, strike signings in recent years, the ones who have adapted best to guide, they have already played in the Premier League. In Ronaldo's case, they were already in the Premier League. In Lukaku's case and Van Persie's case, all they've just built differently which was with the case with Ibrahimovic. Vekulos came in, you saw how hopeless he was. Falcao um, signed on deadline day, often played like the dead. Cavani never really assimilated at a time where the, the, locked, the lockdown and COVID-19 was still injured on people's freedoms. That that was a big issue for him. Even though he had a good good end to his first season, but he was a, he was a fake United. So it's really important that a striker is there on pre-season, not just for those three friendlies at the first team play, but also that week training camp in San Diego. That that would be really important, you'd think, to a player settling in. Um, because apart from goalkeeper, striker is probably the most difficult. It was certainly the most unforgiving position if you're playing for Man United. And uh, last year, I suppose, with Martinez coming in, at the time that he did, he still did come in before the season started, even though he didn't go on pre-season. But he did have Rafael Varane's lean on Castleman Row. I think everybody expected him to be good, and he was he was very good. Ericsson had already played in the Premier League as well. Um, the, the, the only starter, I suppose, or the first team who did struggle to get up to speed at the time, unsurprisingly, was, was Anthony. He didn't have a full pre-season, and there were issues with his game. we Covered chapter in verse, but again, it is absolutely vital that that striker is signed in good time, and it, it would be pretty dreadful for United against to line up against Wolves on August 14th with Anthony Marshall out there number nine. Yeah, it certainly would. It's going to be an interesting scenario to see how this plays out, to be honest. It's going to be a very, very interesting one to keep an eye on. But as Rich said, as you've said, Samuel, it's, there's nothing really happening at the moment in terms of that but uh, that's enough for the transfer chat in part one of this Manchester is Red podcast do rejoin us in part two where we'll have a look at the latest on the takeover situation and the finance results that were released early this week welcome back to part two of the Manchester is Red podcast As I said a few moments ago, we're now going to look at the latest on the takeover front and the financial situation at Old Trafford. Um, Rich, this situation, as we've discussed many, many times over the last seven months or so, is just continuing to rumble on and on and on. Um, Sheikh Jassim still keen to get a deal done. Sir Jim Ratcliffe still keen to get a deal done. I just think it's just one of these that we continue can continue to not put a time frame on. It's just going to rumble on as long as it's going to take, isn't it? Yeah, it'll happen when it happens. And there's been so many deadlines and, you know, bids in this whole process that you can't even say with sort of faith or confidence that the next one will even be the last one because we've we've heard it time and time again. You know, it's just been dragging on endlessly, really. And it again is another factor of all the transfer talk we've been we've been mentioning previously on the podcast that there is the mitigation of the takeover and how that could influence it, not just in terms of finance. Would the owners want United to, to have a different transfer model even? Would they want different people in charge of, of the transfers? There's still you know, a lot of stuff up in the air um, with regard to all that and it could all change quite quickly. It's a very fluid situation and you know, you've always got a caveat with it that something could happen quickly, but this is Man United, this is the Glazers, so I would not uh, put that past, past it at all. And, you know, it's just been an indictment and it's sort of summarised their, ent- their entire time at the club that it's taken this long, that their final act has been so tediously drawn out and played out in front of the world media as it, as it has done, really. And, you know, you can maybe understand from a certain point of view, they want to get the most money they can for, for the club because 
you know, at the end of the day, it is a sales process. That is what their ultimate interest is. Their interest isn't what's best for Man United, it's what's best for the Glazer family, and that is getting as much money as they can. But yeah, like you said, George, I just think that everyone is, is tired of it. Everyone just wants some sort of conclusion some way or another. You know, it's far easier said than done that things are going to happen. Whenever there seems to be an update, social media goes into a frenzy. You see the Qatar flags, you know, being posted everywhere. You see the hype that, you know, it's imminent, this is going to happen. And inevitably, it all goes quiet again. And it drags on for a little longer. And the fact of the matter is that United have already lost so much key time this summer because of the, the, the takeover and certainly the transfer window. You, you know, we, we talk about how United have their targets established earlier in the year. They make contact um, and then they can start executing those plans when the summer window opens. It's not as if transfer window opens and United say, right, who should we buy? They've known for ages who it is they want to buy. They have to then go and execute it. And like we said, there's so many variables about who they actually go and get. But they've already lost so much key time. And it'll get to the stage where if United, even if a takeover happens, there might not be enough time for it to actually be finalised and go through for United to make any meaningful impact with it in the window anyway. So United just have to operate, as we said, I think earlier uh, in the week on the last podcast, in this sort of worst case scenario situation where you've got to just imagine and, and plan as if a takeover is not going to happen and you're not going to sell as many players as you as you want to and you dream of doing so because until United actually have that money in the bank, they can't spend it. And yeah, I think ultimately, as you, you're well aware, George, it is just a case of it will happen when it happens and then that's when we can maybe start talking more definitively about what might happen next. But yeah, right now it's still as tedious as ever. Yeah, it certainly is. Every update you see, like you said, Rich, it sends people excited for a couple of hours, then all dies down again. And, you know, we do the same again a couple of days later or whatever. It's just going around in one big circle with, you know, no closer to a conclusion. But as for the financial results that came out early this week, Samuel, you were across those. Um, United's transfer plans aren't, aren't affected by the um, the financial results. You've you've mentioned that in a piece that you did when when the data came out. Sources have said that the cash is available for investment in the squad, but it's FFP that United are having to be mindful of. Just like you know, a few other clubs in there, I know Newcastle have been very mindful of it, even though they've got an incredible amount of money at their disposal. So where do you sit with this? Because obviously the Glazers, you know, they're not pumping their own money in, but United's you know, revenues are up, at the projected revenues are up at the moment. It's just, again, a lot of moving parts and the takeover is just you know, adding an extra spice to it all, isn't it? Yeah, the results were, they were like the takeover process. They were tedious. There was, there was nothing to really write about them. Uh, and the, the info that made the, the snap line to it, unsurprisingly, was not, not sourced from um, from from what we, we saw when the, the emails dropped, uh, outlining all these numbers and what have you from the, from the third quarter. So, yeah, the, the, the results were, I mean, they, they they used to be an event these things when they do a video call and occasionally there was some interest in it especially if there was an anticipation of a manager in sack but uh i think it was only about one call a year now and you know if if you're off that day um i think i've been off for one quite recently and rich has been off for one every now and then and it's it's, it's a result really if you don't have to cover them there's there's not as i said there's not a lot to write home about i think the only one over the last year was probably in December when it emerged that the Glazers hadn't taken their, their dividend out of the club or something like that, but no, it's not. Um, it's not a day that sets the pulses raising if you're if you're in a newsroom and, uh, yeah, you, you're duty bound to to write to cover it, follow it up, and what have you. But it's um, as I said, it doesn't set the pulses raising. If anything, I think it slows down the pulse writing about it. So. Uh, it was very, very, um, was very grateful to actually move on to to something else from that. And yeah, there was there was an AGM in New York this week, but that that is not that that was not an exciting event. Um, it's it's not like an episode of Succession. It's just it's as as Rich said, uh, very put it very well. It's just utterly tedious, and it becomes a popularity contest. Even I mean, Rio Ferdinand seemed to get some grief after the Champions League final, so being uh, congratulatory towards Man City. So then a couple of days later, he does a, did he do a video uh, chat or something like that saying Qatar is imminent? 
And you just think you said that because you're trying to get back on the side with Man United fans. Guess what? Qatar, it was not him because here we are two weeks later and still nothing has happened. So, uh, yeah, I, I think the, the thing I've discovered with this whole strategic review over the last seven months, about like seven years, is that less is more because there's been a hell of a lot and a lot of it is is is, is revel written. So, yeah, I, I think we're all past the point of caring, which is a shame in certain ways because I think at the start of it we we may be quite engaged by it. Now we've all been ground down by it, and it's it's still not been resolved. And it's it's July tomorrow. Yeah, it certainly is. I mean, there's been so many updates that aren't particularly updates. If you get my meaning, there's been so many little things that mean mean nothing. But yeah. here we are. And that's, that's the caveat as well, isn't it, George? That you, you'll hear this, like, oh, this bid's confident of winning. They're not going to say they're not confident of winning, are they? Because that undermines the whole no. process and the whole, the, the, everything they're doing. And also, if one bid looks like it's winning, well, that means someone can counter bid, come in with a better offer. Until yeah. one of the parties publicly sort of draws out the process and withdraws and says, that's it, we're not engaged anymore. And they, they mean that and there isn't an offer on the table. It's going to carry on happening because you might say this party is winning and they're confident, but then the other party might hit back, restructure their bid, put some more money on the table. So it's just going to carry on going and going. And yeah, people will take it hook, line, and sinker, but until they've actually seen that official statement of a takeover being complete, it is just going to drag on this way. And yeah, thankfully, um, I mean, Samuel and myself will both be away this summer for a part of it. And we can hopefully avoid some of the uh, the daily social media sort of cycle of it all. But yeah, um, it's just I just can't be I can't be I can't wait till it's over to be honest. Yeah, it's quite mad to believe that the World Cup was only three days old when the Glazers' first statement came out. That was all the World Cup was three days in. Cast your mind back to when England beat Iran six two. It was the day after that, and that feels like a lifetime ago now. So yeah, seven months on, and really nothing's happened in seven months to be to be totally honest. So I think at this point we'll move on and end part two on the takeover because there's not really that much more to discuss on this. So in part three, we'll look ahead to pre-season because that's creeping up and concentrate on matters back on the pitch. Welcome back to part three of the Manchester is Red podcast. And as I said a few moments ago, we are now going to look at pre-season that is not too far around the corner and uh, the upcoming fixtures at United have got quite a packed pre-season this time around. Samuel, Rich, you're both going to be flying out to the States in a couple of weeks or so. I think, Rich, you're off to Oslo as well, I believe, for the, the Leeds United game in Norway. It, it's all suddenly crept up rather quickly, Samuel, hasn't it? Considering United's last game was, I think, the 3rd of June when they lost to City in the FA Cup final. It's almost at the point of, let's start the cycle again. Yeah, it almost feels like an extension of, of last season. It's uh, the summers get short. So, uh, Rich has got the uh, privilege of going off to Asia this summer uh, to see what what Man City are up to. So it'll be it'll be tired mm. myself in, in the states. But I think Rich is off to Oslo the week after next because United play the week after next. That's how quickly it comes round. So he'll be able to uh, provide uh, my new coverage. It's Mason Mount's day. We'd hope anyway, just to just to at least get the um, get the juices flowing. But it's I think last year they had they had six games, didn't they? I think they had the one in Bangkok, in Britain, Australia. Um, is that something friendly? Oh, they, yeah. they played the two of the weekend as well. So it was yeah. six games. Um, and on this occasion, it's... Is it, how many games is it? Is it seven again? I think it's eight. Is it eight? Seven I mean, the Wrexham one is obviously... There's that yeah. caveat. It's, it's, it's the academy who are... Who are playing yeah. them and United might actually already be in Houston. So when they're in San Diego, the first teamers are not actually playing a game there. They're just flying to Houston for the Real Madrid game. But as I said earlier, it's it's important to be able to have a couple of players on board to integrate. But as, as a colleague who's also there on tour with me, message yesterday to say it's like Mason Mount's playing Tyrone the last year role this year being the only signing likely to be on Breezy's tour. So uh, I mean, there's, there's every chance that United will put him up to chat in, in Oslo, which would be good. But I think those of us who are to America will be disappointed not to get any face time with him because he's going to be one of them, the main stories and how he's getting on. That's always the case with new signings. And um, 
it's you know it, it it's strange in a way because you, you analyze these games and we have to give a hell of a lot of we do a lot of coverage around them anyway we write pieces at the game we write pieces after the game and write pieces before the next game leading up to that and we try to be as comprehensive as possible but ultimately the performance level of the bite history tells you often it doesn't matter a great deal two of the best players on tour last year were were Marshall and Sancho and they were two of United's worst players last season unfortunately for various reasons so sometimes some of the younger players they might go there and it can it can be easy to feel like they're damned if they do they're damned if they don't if they perform it doesn't matter if they don't perform they'll be touted for a loan it doesn't always work like that um, certain players can can really excel on those tours carry that good form into pre in, into the competitive season take off from them just take the example that Brandon and obviously he's, he's, it's been a long time since he played for United but Greenwood had a really good pre-season in 2019 and then had a very good first full season in the first team Daniel James had a good pre-season as a new signing and uh, hit the ground running as well as a Man United player he was, he was very good in his first four to six months for United so you kind of underestimate the importance even though they might not play brilliantly in every friendly just being able to train with teammates, being able to adapt to the environment and get to know by new surroundings, that is important. And uh, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a pretty great one to have the privilege to go to as well. They go to some pretty amazing places in America and um, there's some, there were some new stadiums for them to, to go to. I mean, United, unsurprisingly, have never played in Las Vegas. There have been many teams that have played in Las Vegas until uh, last year by the Elysian Stadium's only just been recently constructed but certainly when on the one occasion I did go to Las Vegas and was driven past every cab and I saw the stadium there that I had no idea it was being built I thought immediately well it's only a matter of time until there are European clubs coming here to play friendlies of course they had Barcelona Real Madrid there last year so um, United Dortmund isn't quite it's on the level of Barcelona Real Madrid but it's still going to be quite quite curious to see how it plays out yeah, definitely. And Dortmund's one of those games that um, United, of course, will play on the tour in the States. And Rich, arguably last summer, with the exception really on the tour of the game against Liverpool, United did play some fairly low-key opposition. Obviously, in Australia, they played Melbourne Victory, Aston Villa and Crystal Palace, who were out there as well at the same time. This summer, obviously, in the States, they're going to play the likes of Real Madrid, Dortmund, as Samuel's mentioned, Arsenal as well. Uh, obviously, the Wrexham game something a little bit different. It feels like United are playing a better well, yeah. calibre of opposition. Oh yeah, oh, well, you're going to tell me off for saying that now, caliber there, haven't you? So that answers itself. But uh, I mean, yeah, it, it is interesting. But the, these, the thing is, like from a fan's point of view, they're more fascinating tests. But the games are so watered down and meaningless. I think it doesn't matter who the hell they're playing. To be honest, I think I, I'm so maybe disillusioned with with preseason matches as a whole. I've I've blogged enough in the early hours of the morning and watched enough to know that you can hype them up and they can be quite compelling matches. And you get to see plays you don't often always see. There could be new tactics, new faces on show, new kits, but they mean they they count for absolutely nothing. And last season, United had a brilliant preseason. You know, if if you talk about winning the transfer window, United arguably won preseason. They what they won that trophy, did they? Was it against Liverpool that game? I can't quite remember. Sancho yeah. was scoring goals, Marshall was scoring goals, and then they lose the first two Impressive matches of the season. Trophy. So it counts for nothing. And off the top of my head, I can't quite remember, but I swear, was it the season before Liverpool first won the won the Premier League? They lost so loads of games in pre-season. They had like a winless pre-season or something. I seem to remember they lost to Sporting Lisbon or something. And everyone was in, you know, Liverpool fans were up in arms saying, God, the season's doomed. And guess what? The season was absolutely fine. It, it just matters so little, I think, pre-season. It is just about, as Samuel said, the most important thing is getting new players integrated building that squad harmony, working on the ideas you've had from a season before, that's when you build most of your fitness for the whole campaign as well. So for, you know, Ten Hag, he'll want to hit the ground running, get these players doing meaningful drills and getting them all up to speed and, and ready to play with the intensity he wants. But sorry to shoot down your question, George, but for me, I, I don't think it matters too much who, who they're playing against. But, you know, it certainly makes them more compelling um, matches to watch, I suppose. But for me, personally, I, I, I'm not too Fair enough. <laughs> but moving on, um, Samuel, obviously, you you know, Richard's mentioned there about the importance of new signings, them being bedded in in that period. 
I suppose at the same time, it's an opportunity for some of the, the younger players to try and stake a claim ahead of the forthcoming campaign. And I think for, for United this summer, a lot of eyes are going to be on Ahmad, aren't they, after the loan spell he had at Sunderland last season. Do you think, in terms of pre-season, in terms of the younger players, do you think he's the one who's perhaps got the most to gain out of the, the younger crop of players in Eric Ten Hag's squad this summer? Yeah, that would be a fair assessment because in terms of the academy, there aren't many players who are knocking on the door there who have got a, a genuine chance of moving up to the first team on a permanent basis and, and staying there for the new season. I mean, probably mainly, unfortunately, to him, he had an injury towards the end of last season, so he missed took the last two months, so he completely wasn't available for the running. Alvarez Hernandez did very well at Preston, but United already have two left backs. Is, is there some room to accommodate him there? Possibly. I thought he was quite unfortunate not to get a look in on pre season last year, given what a good campaign he had in, in 21 22 when he was getting some exposure under Ralph Rangnick towards the end of that season. And he has, of course, you know, he's, he's fed quite respectably in the Championship. But I think Rich has written about it quite um, co- quite comprehensively about Ten Hag not wanting to just take an academy player for the sake of it. They're not going to have a big role to play in, in the squad next season. I mean, with Hannibal Mosbury, of course, was a, a headline signing when United bought him the 10 million euros from Monaco uh, nearly four years ago. We always we thought maybe last summer he was going to get ample exposure, but... I'm struggling to really recall him doing much in, in Australia or, or Thailand. I'm, I'm pretty sure he went on the tour, but the fact that I'm having to rack my brains and think, did he come on in that game or that game, just goes to show um, how, how peripheral he was. And I can't really see his role becoming greater now. Uh, I, th- I, th- I think that there's, there's maybe just an acceptance there, but... He's, he's he served his development at United. It's maybe time to, to cash in on him. So there aren't that many young players, as I said, who have, have got a really good chance for looking next season. I mean, United squad is still is still too big. Even though a lot of those players, if they got a good fee for them, they'd say, "Yeah, he can go." It doesn't work out like that. Um, I think I wrote last week that United have maybe not even. I wouldn't even necessarily say United got. The starting level of musky players at the moment, and that's that just goes to show what a good job Ten Hag did last season. But also, how many players there are are absolutely expendable, and they're not all going to go. Of course, they can't. You, you, you're not going to get rid of twelve players and sign twelve players. I don't think anyone would even be able to do that on football manager necessarily. So there was there are going to be some players there that although they might be tough. Ten Hag has, has got to make the most out of them. And the, the really great coaches in recent years, they, they've done that. I mean, Divock Origi was turned into a, a cult figure at Liverpool by Jurgen Klopp. It's, it's easy to forget, but he was actually signed by Brendan Rodgers and that was all the way back after the World Cup in, in 2014. Uh, I think Pochettino at, at, um, at the Tottenham, he inherited Moussa Sissoko, who... Or he might have signed this and said, oh, I think, I, I can't remember whether he was already there. But he didn't strike you as one as a player who's going to be integral at Spurs, and yet he had some work there. So Ten Hag is going to have to do that with certain players. Sanchez brings to mind in that sense. We're going back to Adelaide. I think it's in United. United have just got to try and give it a go. And if it doesn't work after one season or, or half a season, then you can cut your losses then. You've got time on the contract and his resale value shouldn't be too impacted by by one uh, by one potentially humdrum season. But he's left-footed. He's done very well in the Championship. He's filled out a bit. Um, Ten Hag has said his future was a club. He was a big investment for his age and given that he was a relative unknown as well, it's, it's nearly three years down the line from when they signed him. It's, you know, it's high time now and I think he's He's got enough reasonable experience in, in British football under his belt for United to give it a go. And it's important that they do have two left-footed forwards just for the balance of the attack. Because when Anthony came out of the team last season, they were, they were compromised then. As, as Rich said earlier with Ericsson, he came out 
one one of the I think it was twenty five times Ericsson was substituted in the second half last season. When he came off, the guy going on for him was nothing like Christian Eriksen. With Anthony, when he came out and seeing Fernandez was often coming to play on the right. So it's in the eye's interest to have a left footer just for balance and just to try and maintain that continuity because that would therefore um that, that would absolutely underpin this it underpinned the playing style it's their stride to you know, really truly play yeah I fully agree with that and you, like you've said there Samuel it's you know it's worth a go isn't it he's he's you know gone into the championship earned his trade and he did very very well so he's certainly worthy of a go and just lastly Rich just to wrap it up um, Sammy mentioned there about Man United not really having that many youngsters who are probably going to break into that you know first team squad next season um, but of course, you know, we saw last year, didn't we, Zidane Iqbal was arguably the breakout star of United's tour of Thailand and Australia, and we all saw what happened to him. So even if a youngster, you know, does get a good few opportunities in pre-season and they do well, it doesn't automatically mean that they're going to go on to have a, you know, a plush career at Old Trafford, does it? Uh, no, not at all. And if anything, I think Iqbal's departure and, and sale has been the ultimate sort of reminder and warning to United's youngsters that, yeah, look, this is someone who you all know you've played with he is so highly rated and one of the top talents to, to come out of the academy technically brilliant seemed level-headed played well in the first team but didn't progress as they wanted to and was sold it was that ruthless there was no second chance there was no even maybe first chance for him to have a proper go in the first team and that is those are the standards that Ten Hag sets and, and that he demands from his players and I think it also tells you how special the players who've got a chance under him are Garnacho, a player who you know is in as Samuel wrote last week, you know he could be United's next number seven. Genuinely, could be, and there's there's real high hopes for him. He's not just a top talent; he has the potential to be an elite talent and someone who can go the whole, the whole way and and be one of the best in the world. That is the genuine belief around Garnacho. Obviously, there's a lot of caveats, a lot of work to do if they're going to fulfil that. Kobe Mainu made his debut last season. Another player who you know he overtook Iqbal in the pecking order. Someone else who was highly rated again might have the same sort of issues. Could play this preseason, could get a chance, but. It's then what do you do next with him? Charlie McNeil, he got that game against Sociedad, didn't he? Went out on loan, did all right, but that was in League Two for Newport, who were very average. So maybe he is not as far along as, as they'd hoped this this moment in time. But there's there's a lot of work to do for, for these youngsters. And I think Ten Hag being in charge is exactly what they need. But he's not going to just give up token appearances in, in matches next season because that's what the club have a heritage of doing. And they've got... You know, they've got an illustrious youth academy, but it's built on having players who deserve that chance, not just handing out appearances willy-nilly. And Ten Hag wants those standards to be be in place. And I think he's the right manager to do that and to nurture that talent. But yeah, I think Iqbal Sale was certainly a reminder that you know you have to be very, very good to get a chance in this United team. Yeah, definitely. He's going to be, uh, you know, he doesn't, uh, doesn't hand them out easily, does he? Certainly particular pick. You know, he's certainly particular about who he hands out opportunities to. Anyway, that's a wrap for um, this week's episode of the Manchester is Red podcast. A big thank you to Samuel and Rich both for joining me this Friday lunchtime. As always, it goes without saying that if you enjoyed this podcast and would prefer to watch it as well as listen to us, we are as on YouTube as well. Just search Manchester is Red and you can subscribe to the channel there. Also, we're trying to promote our TikTok page and the website as well. Just search at Man United MEN on TikTok. And that goes without saying, we'll be back again on Monday to discuss and debate all the very latest United news and views. Have a great weekend and we'll catch you again very soon. Bye.